0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events. The scarcity of an ADHD medication is grabbing the nation's attention. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. For the past seven months, the country's been struggling with a shortage of the drug Adderall, commonly used to treat attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. And things don't seem to be getting better. With the shortage came a domino effect of issues because people are now going days without their daily medication. To learn more about the shortage and the impacts on people and families with ADHD, we're talking to Stephen Myers. He's a licensed clinical psychologist with Chicago ADHD Associates. We're also joined by Zoe Smith, child and adolescent clinical psychologist and assistant professor with the Department of Psychology at Loyola University. Now, when the FDA announced a shortage of Adderall, did you expect all these obstacles to arise for folks who need medication, Zoe?
1: Well, I wasn't surprised, honestly, because it's a life-saving medication and it's so important to people with ADHD. And so it's already not an ADHD-friendly system of getting ADHD medication. And so having this shortage has just shown all of the problems and the systemic issues that we have with this medication being uh, organized by or, you know, administered by the DEA Mm -hmm. and having the 30-day supply limit. There's just, it's just showcased a lot of the issues that families were already having. Yeah, you said it's
0: not an ADHD-friendly system, which we'll dig more into that later in the, in the program. But, but Stephen, I'm curious about your initial reaction to that shortage as well. The
2: unfortunate situation is we're adding yet another constraint into the pipeline. It's hard for uh, children or adult patients to get diagnosed It's hard to find treatment, Mm -hmm. and it's hard to receive now the medication because of the shortage. What you're looking at, and Zoe is talking about this, is the idea of systematic problems in terms of access and efficiency of the system to get people the medicine that they need.
0: Which version uh, of Adderall were we short on, Zoe?
1: So everything. Um, So name brand? Name brand, generics. generics. So it started with Adderall, and then it's now gone to everything. So all different types of medications. So it's not just Adderall. There are a lot of different medications that people use for ADHD, but they aren't interchangeable. So although they have similarities and they do help people with ADHD, having to potentially go from Adderall to say Concerta or Mm -hmm. Vyvanse is really, really different. And then it can have different side effects and different uh, effects on people's lives that can be really, really hard. And so unfortunately now it is all a shortage of all different types of ADHD medication, although it did start with Adderall. Yeah.
0: Wow. So you're both clinical psychologists who, who see patients with ADHD. Remind us, uh, Stephen, of the, the symptoms of ADHD and, and what they mean for people who have the condition.
2: Sure. So there is there are differences in terms of types of ADHD, but if you think about the main symptom areas, number one is inattentiveness, which is the difficulty focusing, being productive, remaining on task. Mm-hmm. Second cluster is impulsivity or making rash fast decisions, which is associated with carelessness and errors. And the third cluster is overactivity or hyperactivity, where this is the uh, excessive movement, a lot of fidgeting, Mm -hmm. and uh, moving your whole body around. The important thing to remember is these are very high levels of these different cluster areas. Everybody has difficulty paying attention at times. Everybody makes rash choices, everybody moves around and gets kind of antsy. I'm glad you're making that distinction. But if you have ADHD, the levels are very, very high and causing problems in multiple areas of life.
0: I mean, what challenges then would a shortage be causing for folks, given what you just described, Stephen?
2: Well, medication is a very effective treatment for ADHD, in addition to... Uh, behavioral interventions. But many people, this is their first line of defense against the problems that are posed. And again, I think if you have a typically functioning brain, you kind of take it for granted that you can move through your day, focus when you need to, remember what needs remembered, and get things done. But what we're talking about with clinically significant levels of inattentiveness or impulsivity or overactivity is you're looking at people who wouldn't be able to be effective in their jobs, mm-hmm. where their relationships will suffer. Children who can't stay focused through their school day who will be making all sorts of errors that go well above their level of, in- of intelligence or competence. So not having medication essentially is breaking a dam that's in place to hold people's lives together.
0: Ah, that's a great way to describe it. And Zoe, I see you nodding there as well. Talk about the lengths that you've seen folks Go to just to get their medicine.
1: Yes, it's been so families that I serve and work with have had a ton of a ton of problems accessing this medication. And so, as I mentioned earlier, and as Stephen mentioned, there are just so many systemic problems to the way ADHD medication is. Uh, prescribed. So Mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, it's a 30-day supply. Many medications can be a 90-day supply, so about a three-month supply. But because it is a stimulant medication, the um, DEA has required that we only prescribe 30 days. And so basically what families have been having to do is Call multiple pharmacies, see when the medication is available, see and learn when they can come in, and then also have to keep talking to their provider to be able to potentially change the dosage or medication or say it, or approve a new prescription. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I've had a family who had to get two different pills because they only had five milligram pills instead of their prescribed dosage and so having to navigate this healthcare system has been as Stephen talked about the issues with having ADHD which often a lot of families who have kids with ADHD may have ADHD to themselves because it's a neurodevelopmental disorder Um, and And you
0: you mentioned a mix of medication there for that one particular patient I mean could that potentially get Dangerous at some point, us uh, starting to mix things, or
1: well, it's, it's the same medic. Sorry, I'll I'll clarify. It's the same medication. Okay. So let's say it's like five milligrams of Adderall, and then so two different pills, uh, gotcha. ten milligrams. But a lot of times, um, one of the- the areas of deficits with ADHD is memory and being able to remember if we even took the medication in the first place. And so Mm. it just leads to a lot of additional problems and families having to navigate all of these time management, problem-solving areas that are really, really difficult for people with ADHD. Do patients ever come to you for help, Stephen? And
0: what can you do about the supply at pharmacies? The issue is,
2: as a psychologist, not very much. What we're looking at is a systemic problem, and people who are providing mental health care oftentimes are at the back end of the process as opposed to the forward end of the process. But the challenge is, and Zoe alluded to this as well, you're expecting people who have trouble with organization and memory to navigate a maze of obstacles. So it's hard enough if you have the ability to be tenacious, and to be organized and have a systematic attack plan to find that medication. But if you're starting from a position where it's so hard just to sequence things to get ordinary stuff done, yeah. that this is yet another layer of complexity that just pushes people farther and farther behind.
0: Have you seen a shortage like this before?
2: Not in my experience. Yeah. I mean, sometimes what happens is there are supply shortages, but they're, they're fleeting, But nothing like this. No, when we're talking months on months and months, uh, this is very unusual. Many people have seen shifts in their medication. They're working with their primary care providers or specialists to do so. Uh, It's not a uniform shortage where people can't find medication anywhere, but it's this bizarre hide-and-seek game that becomes very problematic.
0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. The national shortage of Adderall is creating a number of issues for kids and adults with ADHD. Now, some have been forced to use alternative medicines or go without any at all. So we are talking to two clinical psychologists about the struggles that they have seen uh, with some of their own patients. Zoe Smith is with Loyola University, and Stephen Myers is with Chicago ADHD Associates. Now, uh, Rebecca Little is a journalist and mother to a 13-year-old boy who has ADHD. Now, she recently wrote about her family's experience with this for WBEZ. And she describes having to hunt down her son's next 30-day supply of Concerta. This includes, uh, you know, calling a dozen pharmacies. Uh, She talked about issues with insurance coverage, incorrect dosage, uh, and more, right? What about the people, though, who who just don't have the time or resources to do all of that,
1: Zoe? Yes. So they're just not getting the treatment this life-saving medication that they need and want and have been told is going to be really helpful for them, they're just not getting it. And it's not their fault. It's the system's fault. And it's incredibly frustrating as a provider to hear this and try to problem solve with families, but also understand that if you don't have access to transportation to get to multiple pharmacies, if your insurance is not very good and doesn't cover things and you have other expenses, your kids or you yourself, if you have ADHD, are not getting the treatment that you need to survive in this world. And it is incredibly frustrating for families.
0: Yeah. Any thoughts there?
2: No. I mean, it really does result in people just going without. And sometimes we think something will step in at the 11th hour. But the reality is for many people, for many mental health conditions. There's no saving grace at the eleventh hour, and they just do without.
0: You can read Rebecca Little's story on our website. It's up now at wbez.org. So is there a clear solution to this problem? So we've talked about how it's systemic. I wonder if uh, you know the FDA could possibly make changes to the limits that it has right now on on production.
1: I, yes. Could we just make more? <laughs> yes, we could. But so there's. It's a complex issue, though, because right now it's actually the Drug Enforcement Agency that is uh, enforcing these limits on um, stimulant medication, and then the FDA. Um, you know, one solution is actually to have the FDA oversee it, like many other uh, medications that you know people use in general. And so that would be a solution. But also, just like you said, to uh, increase the amount of medication able to be produced would really help families because there are more people who need this medication than there previously has. And I think we're going to get to that a little bit later. But it's not because ADHD was suddenly created in the pandemic or caused by screen time or sugar or something like that. It's because more people are getting access to mental health care, getting access to services. And so with the pandemic came um, access for telehealth and Telehealth services, when done correctly and appropriately, are really helpful in decreasing a lot of barriers families had to receiving a diagnosis and then receiving treatment. And so, yes, exactly. just be able to make more medication. Just make more. yeah, I mean it's 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 not that simple, but it is that simple, it's right
0: right. Stephen, it is clear uh, more people have been getting diagnosed with ADHD in recent years. Have you been seeing this in your practice?
2: Yes, and it's a good news, bad news sort of scenario. The good news, if you have ADHD, it is definitely beneficial to receive a diagnosis and to be presented with treatment options. The bad news, it creates complexity. The additional people seeking diagnoses has created a bottleneck in the system where people are waiting to be seen by a medical professional or a behavioral health professional to receive the diagnosis. It also introduces the possibility for misdiagnosis, where because of increased awareness, people are obviously concerned, but they might not have ADHD. They could have a different disorder, like mm-hmm. an anxiety disorder, in which case you might not be able to pay attention, not because of distractibility
0: per se, yes. but
2: because of intrusive worries.
0: You know, I find ADHD and OCD to be two uh, you know, conditions that are so improperly used in, in just in, mm-hmm. in common speech, oh, I've got OCD, I keep doing this one thing. It's like, that's not what it means exactly. And so I can totally see when, in the case of ADHD folks, maybe just Googling or hearing about like, oh, it means you, can't, you, you just can't pay attention to things. Oh, that means I must have it. And maybe just self-diagnosing. Mm-hmm. Do you see that?
2: It does happen, but I like to explain to people that ADHD and the symptoms associated with it are all on a continuum. And imagine you line up people from number one to number 100, and number one online is the person who could pay perfect attention. Number 100 is the most distractible person humanly possible, regardless of child or adult. Yeah. Everybody up and down the line will have some difficulty paying attention. If you spend time with number 50 online at the middle, he or she might have times where they're not on task and they're not able to focus. But the thing is, once you arrive at number 93, 94, 95, it's a very different experience. So when people say, oh, I'm, I'm having an ADHD moment, it's true that they're experiencing some version of it. But the key thing is sometimes it's not only this quantitative distinction, but it's a qualitative shift because you can't do the things that you really need to do Mm -hmm. in terms of your school life, your work life, and your relationships.
1: Oh,
0: what a a great breakdown there. Are you seeing this in your practice as well, Zoe, this uh, increase in folks being diagnosed? And and does that bring any concern for you?
1: So that's a great question. So it doesn't bring concern for me in the fact that, so in my work, I particularly serve Black and or Latina, Latina, Latino adolescents in the Chicago area suspected of having ADHD. And so the thing that I've been seeing with the families that I serve is that almost 90% of the people that I see are receiving a diagnosis of ADHD for the first time. And that is not because They haven't shown very clear signs of ADHD. It's because there are biases in our system. It is because um, what ADHD looks like to teachers, to providers, even psychologists like us, uh, has biases. Because most of our work has been focused on school age, like kindergarten to fifth grade, white middle-class boys with ADHD. And so there's been a lot of increase in diagnosis because there's been this increase in access to diagnosis. And what I think
0: I'm also hearing you say is that some of these people are being diagnosed very late.
1: Very late. So our average age in um, the, for the people that I'm working with is 15 and re- receiving a diagnosis at 15 is much later than I would say the average around six to eight years old for a lot of other children who might have families with just more access to mental health services or um, You know, being able to—and you know what? It's not just access, though, because I've had families come to me and say they've talked to their pediatrician, they've talked to a provider, and they need—they've tried to get this forever. And until they come to us, they haven't been heard or validated of their experience, and Mm -hmm. that has been really, really frustrating for them.
0: So— Help us understand, Stephen, what are the different avenues then that people can take to get an ADHD diagnosis? Sure.
2: There are two main avenues. One, you can go through your primary health care provider or specialist. Most people will go through their pediatrician, if the person of concern is a child, or their family medicine or internal medicine uh, primary care provider. Sometimes when it looks like there's a coexisting disorder, the person is referred out to a specialist typically in psychiatry. The second main avenue is through behavioral health providers. Clinical psychologists are the ones who spend most of the time doing assessment relative to the parallel mental health fields, such as social work um, or licensed clinical professional counselors. They are equipped to treat ADHD from a behavioral perspective, but psychologists are the ones who spend um, more time doing assessment relative to our peers.
0: So, if someone's listening to us right now and they're thinking, "I might have ADHD," what do you suggest then as the the possible first step, Stephen?
2: Sure. The most important thing is to find somebody who can do an assessment, who knows a lot about ADHD. There are all sorts of ways to assess potential clients or people who might have ADHD, and I view it a lot like Goldilocks: too soft, too hard. Or just right when it comes to finding the bed uh, yes. at Goldilocks and the Bears. There's sometimes where uh, assessment is fast and loose. It could be one single questionnaire given by a provider to a parent or to a uh, person who is struggling. And then, based on the single questionnaire, somebody might be relatively fast and loose in providing care. Mm-hmm. The advantage of that is it's expedient. The disadvantage is the probability of misdiagnosis is fairly high because the provider simply doesn't have data. Some psychologists will do extensive testing and evaluation. These are called neuropsychological test batteries. They're very useful for a variety of conditions such as learning disabilities Mm -hmm. or traumatic brain injury. However, research has shown that that level of data is actually excessive, and it doesn't necessarily provide additional accuracy in providing diagnosis. So most psychologists who have expertise in this area will do the just right in the middle using the Goldilocks analogy. It's a clinical interview. It involves behavioral rating scales that the person fills out as well as others rating their behavior. And it could have some neuropsychological screening, such as an attention test that is administered oftentimes on a computer or other similar tests. And using all of that that's the foundation. It's also important in this testing approach to make sure the person doesn't have another condition that's masking ADHD. And the final thing is, it's good to know about the technical term, which we call comorbidity, which is the coexistence of another disorder in addition to ADHD. Right. And in fact, the majority of people with ADHD have some secondary disorder, such as anxiety, a spectrum disorder, depression, learning disabilities. That might accompany it, so it's good to get a full sense so that the provider can design the optimal treatment protocol for symptom reduction.
0: That's a, that's. I'm glad that you point that out because I I'm, I'm picturing the person or the family that is new to this, new to this process, Zoe. As you said, a lot of the folks you see, this is a first time uh, diagnosis. Tell us about how you do your evaluations, and for those new folks, how do they know that? Uh, them or their child, that they're getting a thorough
1: assessment? That's a great question. So my project, Project Craft, is called Culturally Responsive Assessments for Teens. And it's a little on the the just right to a little bit more that Stephen was talking about. And so we do exactly what Stephen talked about. So we do a clinical interview, a very thorough interview about all the common comorbidities, mental health diagnoses, that people with ADHD commonly have, particularly thinking about teenagers. So we evaluate trauma, we evaluate anxiety, depression, stress, discrimination, um, you know eating disorders autism a lot OCD a lot of different diagnoses that are commonly comorbid with ADHD and then we also do some academic achievement assessment to understand how they are learning because learning disabilities are also very comorbid with ADHD and then we also do Um, just some working memory, attention, um, understanding of kind of how these teens learn so that we can provide accurate recommendations for school, for treatment, whether that's therapy or medication or both or all of the above. And then we talk to the families. We talk about, you know, ADHD is part of um, being neurodiverse. And so when I use the word neurodiverse, what I mean is that we all have um, different ways of thinking. And so people with ADHD just learn and think a little bit differently than people without ADHD, and so I explain this. I usually draw some things on the board to talk a lot about it and provide a lot of psychoeducation to families nice. to help them really understand what ADHD is because there is a ton of stigma. I would around love that I'm such a visual
0: is. learner, so just yes. hearing that you draw <laughs> things, I'm like. Yes, I am too. (laughs) Stephen's references to Goldilocks, things like that. I'm like, I need the visual. Exactly. Uh, I need to be able to picture this and and see how this, you know, how it fits into Mm -hmm. how I'm feeling. I want to read you both a a quote from the co-director of the Duke Center for Girls and Women with ADHD. So this is from a Time Magazine article that came out last month. She says, "Quote: If you ask a person to close their eyes and imagine someone with ADHD." I'd wager 9 out of 10 times they're going to think of a little boy running around a classroom making lots of noise and getting into trouble. End quote. Stephen, why do people have this picture in their heads?
2: I think people really focus on the hyperactive component. It's the most visible. It will result in the most attention from, say, teachers and parents. The inattentive component, on the other hand, is somebody who's sort of staring out at space they might not be the ones to be waving a flag for assistance, even though the impediments are still there. The other thing that that's predicated on is ADHD is a childhood disorder. We have to unpack that carefully. Yes, ADHD begins for most people during childhood or adolescence. Mm -hmm. However, for most people who are diagnosed or have ADHD in childhood, they, because it's a chronic condition, will more often than not continue to display clinically significant levels of challenge through adulthood. So Zoe was talking about diagnosing a teenager at 15, 16, 17. We also will be seeing people seeking diagnosis in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and even into their 60s. Really? What'll happen is they won't organize their challenges in the same way. They'll say, I was always more distractible, or I can do a hundred things at once, or my mind is nimble. It moves from one topic to the other fast. But they won't use the moniker of ADHD to capture it and describe it until something happens. They get written up for a poor performance evaluation at work. Their child is diagnosed with ADHD, and along the way of providing data or gathering history, they Mm. realize this is actually encompassing my own experience as well. Yeah.
0: And let's throw another nugget in here. There's data in the, in the early 2000s that shows males had a consistently higher prevalence of ADHD than females, right? Why is there a gender gap in treating and in diagnosing this? Well,
2: there's two reasons. One is ADHD is mainly a biological condition. We view it as a neurobehavioral disorder. So, like many neurological or biological based disorders, you can see gender differences in terms of expression. The second thing is if you look at that hyperactive element that you were referring to before, that cluster of symptoms is more common among boys and men. There will be the predominantly inattentive symptom cluster among girls and women. They're not waving the flag for recognition, mm-hmm. so it doesn't get diagnosed. And it wouldn't be categorized necessarily in the same fashion.
1: Right, because girls uh, girls are socialized often in our society to be quiet, sit down, and are socialized. And so although girls with ADHD have that restlessness, have that hyperactivity, often it's become internal and they internalize that hyperactivity into their thoughts, into anxiety, into uh, restlessness. But because, again, we're socialized to be quiet, and often teachers, parents are like, ah, boys will be boys, but will not say that to a girl acting that way. They learn to mask those symptoms, which can lead to comorbidities like anxiety and depression. Yeah.
0: We spoke to Ginny Nicaforas, who's a licensed clinical social worker and ADHD certified service provider with guiding behavior. Now she mentioned that folks with ADHD generally have a good sense about what they want. The challenge comes in performance because of different what she called executive functioning profiles.
1: And yet you sort of see them struggling and not doing um, maybe the things they verbalize that that they want to do. Um, And so I think that can be um, confusing for those who don't understand ADHD and be like, well, here's this person, you know, saying all the things they want to do. And it sounds great. And and yet I don't see them doing it. Right. So then stigma labels can come from that and and um, and it can lead to a ton of minimization.
0: So, Zoe, what other myths or or misconceptions do you hear a lot about ADHD?
1: Um, That, you know, I've heard a lot from people who are getting their first diagnosis that they get on their report card, that they're not living up to their full potential, that they're lazy, that they're Mm. capable of more. And those are things that just break my heart. Because it's not that people with ADHD are stupid or lazy. I always tell my families we need to delete those words from our vocabulary. But that people with ADHD, uh, the system of our education system, our work system is not set up for neurodivergent brains. And if we valued that more... Because ADHD is a natural variance in how our brains think. There are so many benefits to having ADHD, but our society just doesn't value that. And so Mm. I always try to bring it back to the system and just talk about, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just that our system is not designed for the way you think and it can be really frustrating so here are some ways we can help you work in this world and think about how to make sure that your amazingness is valued
0: yeah i love the way you phrase that stephen we've been talking a lot about treatment like medication or behavioral therapy there are also support groups right Mm -hmm. um here in chicago too right so what what do you think about that about incorporating care like a, a group with going to therapy and taking medicine? Sure.
2: Each person will have to determine what the right treatment protocol is for them. When I've had conversations about medication that a uh, medical health professional would be providing, some people will say medication is not for me, and that has to be respected. Everybody should have control over what their treatment options are. Some people will find a support group to be very helpful in normalizing the experience, challenging the idea that you are alone, that you are uniquely struggling or, God forbid, you are defective in some way. Yeah. So meeting with people who are experiencing similar struggles, or if you're the parent of a child with ADHD, to have the opportunity to get support from other parents can be invaluable.
0: Yeah. But, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot today. We've talked about the stigma included there. Uh, I'm curious, before I let you both go, real quick thoughts on on the things that we can do today to just start breaking down that stigma. Uh, You first, Zoe.
1: So I think there's a lot of things we can do. I think talking about ADHD, so just doing this uh, episode has been really wonderful, just getting the um, misunderstandings out there and get debunking the myths. One thing that my team does is tries to get out a lot of information to communities. So we go to community organizations, we go to schools, we talk to all of the different people that could benefit from this information, teachers, parents, teens. But I think also Really valuing people with ADHD more as a society. And so we have youth and parent advisory groups, or we talk about what it's like to have ADHD, what it's like to have a kid with ADHD, and how we can make our society better for them. And so I think that just making these changes, making mental health care more accessible, making all of these things more accessible to more people are going to benefit everyone in the long run. I'll give you the last word, Stephen, breaking down
0: the stigma and and really changing the narrative about ADHD.
2: Sure. And I'll introduce another technical term that we use as far as research-informed clinical psychologists. It's called bio- psychosocial disorders, biopsychosocial, it's realizing that ADHD is not your fault, that there is a biological origin, the bio part, that expresses itself psychologically through these executive functioning challenges, organization, distractibility, memory issues, all of the challenges that we've been talking about. But also there's the social component as well, And Zoe was alluding to this as well. It's incumbent upon us as when we're designing classroom environments, when we're designing work environments, Mm -hmm. when we're thinking about what to expect of one another, to fully embrace this idea of neurodiversity, as opposed to one size that must fit all, it's incumbent on us not only to seek out assistance and diagnoses that would help us as individuals, but to promote the greater acceptance at the social level which we
0: can do. Stephen Myers is a licensed clinical psychologist with Chicago ADHD Associates, and Zoe Smith is a child and adolescent clinical psychologist and assistant professor with the Department of Psychology at Loyola University. Thank you both so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This episode of Reset was produced by Micah Yason, and it was edited by Andrew Merriweather and Dan Tucker. Hear all the important stories affecting our region and the country by subscribing to our podcast. We share episodes every morning and afternoon, Monday through Friday, with a bonus episode on Saturdays. That's all for today. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you tomorrow.